This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. It's time for the second part of our big interview with the retired Navy SEAL, base jumper, speaker and podcast host, Andy Stumpf. Andy hosts his own podcast. It's called Cleared Hot. He and many guests from often military backgrounds discuss common themes like seeking out adversity, moving towards things that scare you. So I'd be a terrible seeking out adversity. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll be doing the absolute opposite to that. Responding to challenges. It's actually a really good listen. I've actually caught a couple of episodes, and uh, if you listened last week, and and I'm sure you'll become aware of. Andy's a great speaker. He he really is a really really articulate speaker, and he's got a a very good style of communication as well. And and last week we got an amazing insight from him into the buds training, the seal training, that the legendarily brutal hell week and the strategy that Andy employed to get through it. Today is a bit more fragmented. We're going to talk about Andy's experience of war, uh, of getting shot, and his retirement, which included becoming a base jumper and, last, a wingsuit jumper. Wow. Wow, impressive. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to this because the one thing that stood out from last week's interview is he's just got this no-nonsense, yeah. candid approach, tells it like it is, yeah. and it's really refreshing. And th- that will continue for mm. sure in this in this particular interview because once he graduated, he joined SEAL Team 6. This was back in 2002. This was less than a year after the September 11 attacks. And I asked him whether he was aware at the time of the changing nature of what posed a threat to national security and just how the very landscape of military combat was shifting in the face of these new threats. No, I didn't. I didn't understand how much it was going to change. I, I had an idea, I guess, a very naive idea on how it would change my occupation at the time, given what it was I did for a living. And it changed it in many ways that I thought it would and then many ways that I didn't think was even possible. But no, I wasn't doing a really good job of keeping up with it real time. I was just focused on my job really more than anything. And I suppose, again, it comes back down to the incremental things. You've got to focus on the day to day. You can't be thinking about big picture stuff like that. Well, what I did, I mean, you know, there's three levels of warfare, strategic, operational and tactical. Strategic is like, what's the United States foreign policy? Operational, you know, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. And then at the tactical level, at the very, very bottom of the tactical level is somebody whose boots are actually on the ground. So I had, and that's what I did. I had no impact on operational or strategic planning. Um, I executed the plans that other peoples came up with, but that was not my job. So I did not focus on that. I just tried to be as good at my job as possible. When you're at the sharp end of it, on the front line and you're basically carrying out instructions based on decisions that other people have made who've never maybe been on the front line yeah maybe they're professional kind of strategists it's just a crazy to me i'll never understand it yeah it's unfathomable to think about buying into that i just don't trust people and their decisions enough really i don't trust their intentions enough to think that i'm going to put my life on the line you know on the basis of these people's decisions Without knowing kind of what's behind that, I would really, I mean, because shoot, with, the accept- with, with the exception of this company, which never makes any bad decisions, obviously, <laughs> um, there are companies around the world and in this city that make bad decisions and lousy decisions all the time. And I would imagine that military is is actually no different. Yeah. I mean, we know that it's no different. Yeah. So yeah. it's just to be the the pointy end of that is just. I mean, again, he kind of reiterates: you you can't spend too much time. Right mulling over strategic decisions. I mean, it's just a complete waste of your time. 
Um, and he served in Iraq during the so-called War on Terror and in Afghanistan. I wanted to know if his perspective on this strategic component of American foreign policy changed during the years from graduation to when he left the military. It did. And I think that was more to do to just me being older and right. having more laps around the sun and seeing like the effort that was being put in and the sacrifices that were being made and literal blood, sweat and tears and the lack of impact that they were having. And then foreign policy and the tie of you know political corruption to the decisions that are made, the military industrial complex is a real thing. I'm not saying it's uh, insidious in nature in all respects, but there are people who deeply profit off of uh, warfare in any country. Um, and so it's, you know, the older I have gotten, the difference, my, you know, my optic on the world shifts just due to my own time navigating my way through it. And I guess that's why it appeals to impressionable young people mm. in some ways. It's designed almost to attract that, those types who aren't thinking and, and who haven't had the experience that Andy later had. Yeah, and I'm surprised he doesn't sound like bitter about it. But no. when you talk about people profiting off of warfare, but ultimately you're the chess piece in that game that they're profiting off of. Yeah, you, I, wouldn't it make you angry? But I guess you know it's a but choice it, you've made in your it, life. It, and, it's and, it's you know, served it's you in purpose, so many but, ways. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's given you a purpose and it's it's brought you to a a kind of experiential level with your kind of comrades that, mm. that you know, few people get to experience. There may be some people that come out of it angry, but he, he seems completely the opposite, like you said. Yeah. I wanted to get a sense of where his head was at when, when he was deployed in Iraq. You can have all the training in the world, as we heard about last week, but when your boots hit the ground, it's got to be pretty disconcerting. When you land in Iraq and you have no idea what's going on, did he have cause to dwell on his own mortality? Because I know I would be if that were me in that situation. And as it happens, he was shot. He was shot in the leg by an insurgent at close range with an AK-47, an incident that he acknowledged was a statistical likelihood the longer one serves on the front line. I mean, they don't build casinos off the winners. You know, I've been there at the craps table watching people throw dice and they're on a, they're on a hell of a heater and eventually they're going to roll a seven um, and they're going to lose it all. If you have an occupation that puts you in an environment where, you know, pointy metal is flying in both directions at thousands of feet per second. If you continuously go into that environment, the odds of you uh, interacting with one of those projectiles, it's probably going to slowly increase. Doesn't mean you're, everybody's going to get shot or injured or killed, but you know, the odds, it's the anti anti hunger games. May the odds never be in your favor, essentially. Um, as far as questioning mortality, I think that's, it's, it's, I can only speak for myself. You lie to yourself and you say, it's never going to happen to me. Is essentially how you self-justify. You know, it's you're aware of your mortality. You're aware of times, generally, retrospectively, of how close you may have come to being seriously injured or killed. But again, you have to control your thought process. Now, I don't want people on target who are worried about their mortality. You need to have your conversation with yourself about that before we kit up and go and do our job. And I have nothing, no issue with people worrying about their mortality, being concerned about their mortality. But the fear of death doesn't actually keep you alive. Um, it can actually force you to do things that could end your life even faster. What keeps you alive is being able to main maintain control of your emotions and your thought process and objectively work your way through very nonlinear problems that are thrown at you in real time. Fear doesn't help that. Um, it can actually hurt it. So I think everybody deals with their mortality in their own way. Um, but at some point in time, you have to shelve that and uh, and focus on doing your job. And that's the kind of no-nonsense <laughs> element mm -hmm. to it. 
And it's true, right? I mean, Ant Middleton, when we spoke to him and he was in the SBS, the Special Boat Service, he was saying there was a beautiful simplicity to life on the front line where you kind of made peace with the fact that you would either live and survive or you wouldn't. Mm. And there was no grey area. There was just, it was a very simple way of existing. And this is a mindset that these guys have to talk themselves into. Otherwise, why go? I mean, you're crazy to even go because you're asking for trouble. Yeah, but I mean, you go in, like you said, knowing what's up, you know what could happen to you. But I'm sure when it does, it must still be a surprise when you're the one who gets sure. shot. Yeah, you know? and he did. So, I mean, we've had a couple of guests on Off Script over the years who have been shot, uh, but it's still a pretty select list. Yeah. Uh, there's only a couple that I ne- could remember. Never as a result of being on this show, I no, have to no, stress. No, 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 no. Yeah, absolutely. No disclaimer. But when Andy was shot at close range, my first question to him was, did he think he was going to die? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought I did shatter my leg. Um, and, you know, we do all this medical training and it's like the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, you can fit all of your bo- uh, body's blood mass or blood volume inside of the quad and hamstring space. So I'm like, sweet, that's what's going to happen to me because that's right where I got shot. It was high up on my hip and like it felt like I like my funny bone. Like it was just like a vibrating sensation pain. I was just like, oh, I'm f-. I figured out about five minutes. And that's the most <laughs> insane pain you can ever experience, I would imagine. Up until this point, and I'm really not trying to uh, test that at all. I'm really not interested in seeing like a compare and contrast scale. <laughs> Is it true? They always say with childbirth, you forget the pain. Is it true that with getting shot, you forget the pain as well? Or does it still? <laughs> no, no. Whoever said that's an idiot. <laughs> I mean, it fades, right? I think you're, 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 the body does a good job of... of rounding the edges on things that were painful it might fade a little bit but uh no i remember it quite well (laughs) (laughs) no no kind of rose tinted reflections on i'm I'm sure the childbirth is just something somebody said to make sure women are still willing to carry it as well that's just one big lie isn't it it's just it's just a, a fallacy to ensure that the human population does continue to grow right then we were hearing from andy about how painful that was and how the idea that you forget the pain is just a nonsense myth and doctors told him that it would be years if ever before he recovered the use of his leg and returned to full active duty he did make a full recovery in 2006 he returned to the naval special warfare center as the leading petty officer for second phase buds training which is what we detailed last week and it was a long journey for him i asked whether it you could it was comparable with a professional athlete suffering a career-threatening injury and they often say that it's much more mentally taxing than it is physical. Yeah, I would say it tracks right along with what the other athletes have said. I mean, I was doing what I wanted to do with the people I wanted to do it with in the environment that I had always wanted to be in. And then that's taken away from you. And then you ha- you're left with a lot of questions about your like, am I ever going to be able to do this again? What did I do that was wrong that led me to this outcome? Um, you know, the physical rehabilitation is what it is. I think the psychological and emotional one actually probably could be a little bit more long-winded and more complex, but it's, I mean, it's probably very analogous to those uh, high-level athletes that you're talking about. I mean, it's just, it, it's easy to define who you are by what you do. And then to have that objectively thrown in your face that you may not be able to do that anymore. It opens your eyes up, you know, to what the rest of your life could be like. And that's what it was for me to answer the second part of your question is I realized that, you know, at some point in time, this is going to end for me regardless Let's let's focus on a little bit of like what I'm going to do after this and make sure that I'm constantly reminding myself that this is just what I do. It's not who I am. 
And that was his mantra when leaving the military as well. And, and it's taken him on to all sorts of interesting other endeavours as well. He told me that the guys that struggle are the ones that fail to make that distinction, mm. which is really important. Mm. Now, I couldn't end this part of the chat without asking which war movies get Andy's seal of approval. And it's fair to say he wasn't too complimentary mm. of how Hollywood has portrayed warfare. They overdramatize uh, every aspect of everything that they do. And what they produce is hot trash. And I wish they would stop. Is there a film that you can kind no. of point to no. that you would say, yeah, that's an accurate <laughs> depiction. No. Any that's come close? Uh, the first few minutes of the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan is pretty amazing. There are some pieces of the movie Black Hawk Down that are pretty reflective of what the reality is like. But again, we're talking short slivers of an overall, you know, or small slices of an overall pie. I cannot point to a movie that was like, you know what? That nailed it from soup to nuts. <laughs> soup said, to nuts. Said, <laughs> Nobody wants to watch a realistic war movie. No, no, I mean, that would no. just be well, depressing. He says, he Those says, are called documentaries. When he says things yeah. that, you know, like he can't watch a film if he sees a grenade go off and there's a fireball. Oh, wow. Because grenades don't make fireballs. They just make a puff. <laughs> and I did not know that. My, yeah. I did not yeah, know that. Yeah, grenades do not make fireballs. So he says he has to switch off every time he sees that. Yeah. The oh. other thing that it really gets a bee in his bonnet is um, when he sees guns on safety in situations where, you know, like he said there was a scene in Sicario where right. they're about to open fire and he, he, he notices the gun and it's got the safety lock on it. And he's like, I just... I've t- I mean, that's an eagle eye. He's accepted know, that. that it's quite weird. Yeah. But fair play, uh, fair you know, play. it's fair to say that he's not uh, he's not he's not certainly an advocate of realism. No, he in gave war that movies. question short. He really did. No, he no, really no. did. Um anyway, uh he continues actually to represent the SEAL community. In fact, he said in twenty fifteen he set two world records after jumping from thirty six thousand feet, flying over eighteen miles in a wingsuit in an effort to raise a million dollars for the Navy SEAL Foundation. He's a sponsored skydiver and base jumper. And at the start of the year, he and eight other veterans set a new world record for the fastest time to skydive in all seven continents. And one of the jumps was right here in the UAE uh, on the Abu Dhabi Corniche. They also skydived Antarctica and over the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Uh, She went Union Glacier Camp in Antarctica, Santiago in Chile, Cluiston in Florida, Barcelona in Spain, Cairo, Abu Dhabi, and then finally in Perth as well. And he did it all in economy class oh. travel, he, was, uh, he hastened to add. But um, he completed the mission. He raised money for an organization called Folds of Honor in six days, six hours, and six minutes. Excellent which he's work. actually challenged the veracity of that. Um, but I had to ask him what it was like to skydive over the pyramids of Giza. It's hard to describe. I've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,500 jumps. Uh, which is not a lot, actually, for somebody who's been jumping as long as I have. I know people with 30, 40, 50,000 jumps who actually work in that world and it's what they do for a living. But I've never, I mean, how do you, I don't know how to describe being over the top of the Great Pyramid of Giza, like in free fall, watching it get closer, closer, like what a crazy visual. And then it's also kind of hard to describe to people uh, how commercialized it is all the way around the pyramids, you know, the postcards and the National Geographic stuff. Let's just say they get really selective with the angle that they're shooting from because you don't want the Marriott to show up in your uh, production. (laughs) And there was literally like a a Japanese company doing like some award ceremony right next to the golf course with these huge banners. We're sitting there packing our parachutes, drinking coffee with the pyramids behind us. It's like, what? what's going on here? What world are we living in? That is so true. And I've actually played that golf course, which is now derelict. 
right. when I went there in 2004, I told him that I played the golf course. Yeah. And uh, I was taken on a horse to the edge of the pyramids, then stuck on a camel. Trying to get off the camel, the price of actually getting off went up. Went up. It escalated from the the agreed price that I actually set to get on the damn thing, and it is unbelievably commercial. It's unbelievably mm. commercial, and yet whenever you see a photo of the pyramids, they're just in isolation. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they're in the middle of the desert. They're right yeah, yeah. slap bang in the middle of Cairo. Yeah, <laughs> it's the most amazing photoshopping. Um, but as spectacular as that was. The Antarctic jump, I wanted to find out how those two compared with one another because that must have been a pretty surreal experience as well. They both stand out, but for different reasons. Uh, the Antarctic jump, I would say, that was what I thought was going to be the most memorable jump before we started the uh, trip. And it was memorable in the sense that it was so remote and the logistics involved and in actually getting there and being able to do it reduces the number of people that are accessible to do it to very small. I think there's been... I was talking to one of the partners there at ALE, uh, Mike McDowell. He estimates there's been maybe 25 people who have skydived on Antarctica. So that part of it was cool, but it just, I mean, it looked like snowtop mountains. It, it it really did. It just was white as far as the eye could see. Um, I don't know anything that could compare to getting out over the pyramids. Uh, and I don't know why, I don't know why I hadn't put much thought into how awesome that was going to be. Um, skydiving over the pyramids is not as unique as people might think. I mean, we basically went through a skydiving operation that has that as part of what they offer. They don't offer it often, but they offer it often enough that it's not incredibly unique. You know, the barriers to entry are low enough that most people could do that if they wanted to. But I just, I mean, the visual of getting out, I mean, in Cairo itself too, like look at some satellite imagery of Cairo and how dense and compacted it is. And then there's just like, boom, one of the seven wonders of the world. So that, that tops the list for sure. So that is, that gets Andy's vote and he's done thousands of jumps. So that really is a uh, high praise from him. Base jumping. Now this is what really makes my skin crawl. Yeah. I mean, skydiving, I can kind of, I can, ex yeah, loads of people have done skydiving. Yeah, you know, no, base um, jumping is wild. Base, jump, base jumping Another is level. a whole different level. And uh, then when you add a wingsuit to base jumping, <laughs> you get the really, the, the hardcore creme de la creme of crazy activities. Do you think you could do a base jump to save your own life? <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously not. You just showed us a video of Andy doing a base jump and what that looks like. Full on squirrel suit and just dodging. I mean, he must have been feet away from, yeah. Uh, yeah. from, from rock cliffs and yeah. sort of okay. sides of these No, No cliffs, canyons. no flying, just a, just a regular base jump. So you've got a parachute. You can, all you have to do is throw yourself off a bridge and, okay. and deploy the parachute. Rob, let me put it this way. Half the time when I put these studio headphones on my head, I smack myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> oh, dear. Do, do you reckon you could do a base jump to save your life? I think the only person who's getting out of here alive is Rob. <laughs> the big interview with Offscript. The final part of our interview with the retired Navy SEAL and world record setting wingsuit jumper Andy Stumpf. And we're into the base jumping part of this little story now. This is really where it gets really serious. Yeah, I mean, in base jumping for the uninitiated, what does that look like? Oh, it's base. What does it stand for? Bridges. Um, You've got buildings, antennae, radio masts, spans, uh, yeah. which means bridges, bridges, and earth, which is cliffs. Got it. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I got it wrong. I thought B was for bridges, but you're right. It's buildings. Anyway, I wanted to find out exactly what was kind of pushing Andy's buttons in his pursuit of base jumping. And he insisted that he's not a reckless thrill seeker. I would actually say I have a very healthy uh, fear mechanism. I think 
you know, one of my go, no go criteria for when I was base jumping, um, and I haven't base jumped in a few years now, just because I don't have the time to stay as current as I would need to. It's not a, it's not an activity that you can be partially involved in. That's something that you need to commit yourself uh, to doing, or you need to commit yourself to not doing it. In my opinion, I mean, people take a, a variety of approaches to it. However, I want to live through that experience and not have a, you know, a flash in the pan moment and go out in a blaze of glory. But if I ever was preparing to do a base jump and I wasn't terrified, I would have walked away immediately. I mean, the warning signs that your body is giving you, uh, they're important. You know, it's your body's is designed pretty well. Like we've come far as a, a species and there's reasons why your body gives you the feedback that it does. Um, and if you're not scared about doing something that could potentially take your life, uh, you're either an idiot or a sociopath. And I don't actually want to jump with either of those types of people. So I was always really cautious with who I went out into the backcountry and base jumped with. But it's not about whether or not you are scared. It's about whether or not you can manage that fear and still make decisions um, in, in the clearest headspace possible. Um, I'm not going to say that base jumping is a safe activity, but you can do it as safely as possible. And that's what I focused on. And then got to a place in my life where I could no longer focus on it to the degree that I wanted to. So I had to hang it up. So now to the crown prince of free falling activities, which is the wingsuit base <laughs> yes. jump, which is the combination of flying kind of and base jumping as well. It's an unregulated sport. To perform this activity, you need to be an experienced skydiver, wingsuit pilot and base jumper. And it takes hundreds of practice jumps to achieve the skill of these disciplines in order to be even before you consider getting on a wingsuit. Just as a bit of context, when you look up base jumping, or at least what it stands for, the first link is a Wikipedia on base jumping. The second link is a title that says, why are so many base jumpers dying from National Geographic? Mm, yeah. That's it's how not dangerous a safe it sport. is. Yeah. Andy jumped in a suit called the Squirrel. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to find out how you became a wingsuit jumper. Obviously not for my own benefits, but for <laughs> anyone who might be listening to this show who's you know, got a hankering for, a for it. Uh, Andy explains that you've got to start with skydiving. As far as what it feels like, it feels like you're laying on an air mattress. They're really not a complex design. It's, uh, it's a nylon suit, essentially, that has ram air inlets. So as your speed increases, more air is actually pushed into the suit. So it's much like the wings of an aircraft. There's a you know, spars that go down the actual like fabric and that, that there are cross ports in that fabric. So the air that's coming into the suit helps inflate the wing. And it really feels like you are laying on an air mattress and flying it is really easy. You kind of just, you can lean your weight into it. And over time it becomes so natural. You just, you kind of just think about which direction you want to go and your body follows. What what was the 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 craziest wingsuit jump or base jump you ever ever did, Andy? You know, I've always actually tried to avoid crazy. So if people had like lined up an idea of like, oh hey, this is an insane thing that we should try, it's like, <laughs> hey, why don't you go try that and let me know how it goes? Because again, I want to have the most boring but longest base jumping or skydiving or fill in the blank career that there is. Um, there were some technically complex ones that we did, uh, and by that I mean. If you if you chose to push off the cliff, there were mandatory performance obstacles, meaning you had to get your suit flying. Because when you first step off of a cliff, you have no forward speed. You're you're basically going to start falling until the suit gathers energy, and then it will start horizontally traveling. Suits inflate; uh, they call it the start. How fast your suit can start traveling forward. 
Uh, they inflate and they start at different times. And also the experience of the jumper has an impact on that as well, the angle that which you that you jump off. So I'd say as far as, I mean, craziest, again, I try to avoid that, but most complex would be when you're standing on the edge and there's a mandatory performance obstacle, meaning you have to get the suit flying in a certain amount of time or you will 100% impact. And you know that, so you have to nail you have to nail what's everything that's for the first four seconds, or you're going to die. <laughs> Just threw that in at the end. Though. Four seconds to get it right. Wow! Could you get it right in four seconds? The way so? he just says impact, you know, there's going to be an impact. A yeah. mandatory performance obstacle is so matter of uh, fact. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so sanitized. Like, it's sort of military speak, isn't yeah. it? It's a mandatory performance obstacle. <laughs> in other words, that's a massive great rock that's going to kill <laughs> yeah. you when you, when you go splat on it. Exactly. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh god what a guy. I, mean, I, I like the way he downplays you know he, he he talks about it like he's it's it's a really prudent like his hobby is kind of chess and, and lawn mowing yeah i uh, do like how he says that he wants to have the longest and most boring yeah, base jumping career it makes good so line. much yeah that was great you know yeah, just it, resonate it's an oxymoron though because it's it's, hmm. it's i don't know there's just nothing boring about it. it's yeah it's so terrifying and i can't even do a bungee jump just <laughs> When you're actually attached to something, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't even do that. Yeah. I couldn't even do that. So I just can't wrap my head around it. But massive thanks to Andy. Great to catch up with him. And you can check out his Cleared Hot podcast on iTunes. You can follow him on Instagram. He's on Andy Stump 212 And uh, yeah, he's. Uh, uh, I thought he was a fantastic guest, actually. He, he gave us a real good insight into life in the, as a Navy SEAL and going through all the training and uh, all those things that we're never going to try, including nope. base jumping, wingsuit jumping. We're living vicariously through these That's interviews. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, by proxy. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 